0: Support for an honest account comes from Open Money, who are making financial advice affordable and accessible to everyone. Open Money offer personalised financial advice online by asking you a few questions and telling you about the next steps for your money. That could be working down debt, saving a cash buffer or investing. Then they give you the tools and advice to help you move forward with your finances through their app and online portal. If investing is the right move for you, they'll give you investment advice and the option to speak to a qualified financial advisor. You can begin with as little as £1. Their low annual fees means you can keep more of your money. You can download the app today or head to open-money.co.uk for more details. And please remember that with all investing, the value can go down as well as up. And thanks to Open Money. to An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our work, health, relationships and more. I'm Rachel Revis and today I'm talking to Nell Frizzell, the journalist, Vogue columnist and author of The Panic Years, her memoir which is published by Penguin in May. The book describes the stage in your life with no name, somewhere between adolescence and the menopause, a period she calls the flux. Nell recounts her own conflicts about having children, finding a partner, establishing herself in her career, and the financial conundrums along the way which affect many women, such as nursery fees, the cost of IVF, parental leave, the gender pay gap, and more. Nell's book, as she says in this interview, is far from being a manual for motherhood. It covers so much ground and really gives voice to the sometimes very unfair feeling that time is running out. The quality of the recording of this episode isn't as good as normal because due to unforeseen circumstances we had to record on my phone in a pancake shop on Shrove Tuesday. Amazingly for London it was quite quiet in there and at the end a young guy nearby took a picture of us for me. And he said he hadn't meant to eavesdrop, but he had found our conversation fascinating and it had made him think. So given that Nell did most of the talking, obviously, it just is a testament to how articulate and thoughtful she was. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as the guy in the pancake shop and I did. I loved your book, and which is out in May. And can you just tell me a little bit about what inspired you
1: to write it? Mm. so I thought I want to write a book about <clears throat> motherhood and the i th- I thought it might just be a funny book about what it's like to be a new mum, but then I'd also for years had this um, sort of idea more of a frustration that I think at the end of my 20s, basically bang on 28, I went through a sort of what felt like a a huge and fairly devastating change in my life. I broke up with a long-term partner. I was made redundant. um, I felt like I had like a last roll of the dice. What was I actually gonna do with my life? What did I want to do with my life? And having just come out of a long-term relationship, I'd lost huge, I'd lost a handle on who I really was and what I wanted anyway and I looked around me and realised that loads of my friends and colleagues and peers were having the same crisis and we all thought it was an individual crisis where people were tra- retraining in their jobs, they were moving countries, their parents were getting ill, they were buying a house, they were getting married, they were getting, separating from a long-term partner and we all thought that we were individually somehow fluffing our life and then after I'd had a child I started to see that transitioned quite differently and realised that what was actually happening was that the sort of notion of fertility, the burden, responsibility, opportunity of fertility, however you want to frame it, starts to really come pounding at your door in your late twenties, because however we feel about fertility, it is finite. And I knew that my mum got the menopause at 40,
0: that's the first thing I did after reading your book I'd ask her. I
1: WhatsApp my mother I was like <laughs> when did
0: you get your menopause
1: yeah because I mean you're, it's not an absolute guide but you're probably going to take after her to some extent and so I knew that my the pressure on me was probably even more heightened than it was on other people because um, it meant I only at that point had maybe 10 fertile years left and I was in no position to have a child and my friends were starting to have children so I think at, I was by the time I had my son I was 32 And I started to look back on the Nell at 28 with a bit more, not compassion, but just a bit more um, insight and realised that what I was doing by effectively blowing my life to bits was also creating a a space in which I could become ready to maybe have a family if if that's still what I wanted to do. Do
0: you think it helped that you, because that's the impression I got in the book, was that you knew, you always kind of knew you wanted Mm. a family. which helps in a sense because it's like you know what you want yeah it's just the case of getting there yeah Did it's of getting
1: there and also that that desire is in itself quite tricky because i think as a like i'm doing air quotes here for everyone listening <laughs> that as a like a modern <clears throat> privileged educated woman to say what i really want is to have a baby seems almost like you're kind of bowing out of the race and that what you should want is like your aspirations should be a bit higher. Mm -hmm. and a bit more woke and a bit more enlightened than just oh what I want is like to have a baby in my belly (laughs) like Mm -hmm. have their feet and stride around the kitchen warming up milk like I wanted I felt somehow guilty that I was willing to put the rest of my life on hold to have a baby but then that's also no I think that's an unfair product of a kind of conditioning that I'd unwittingly become susceptible to where I thought that I had to compete with men and that meant I had to have a sort of quote-unquote male attitude towards family which is well it can happen but it's not the most important thing to me whereas actually it was the most important thing to me it would always been the most important thing to me I wanted it more than anything else in in my life but I felt like I had to sort of get the rest of my life to an acceptable socially acceptable point before I did it. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm <clears throat> as someone from a completely ignorant standpoint here. I <clears throat> ask this is
0: when you say put the rest of your life on hold, is that conditioning too, or is that just reality?
1: I think it was, I think it's reality that I hadn't even started to understand completely. Like, I think the effect it was going to have on my career and my relationship and where I could live and how I would socialise, my ability to form new memories, vocabulary, all of that was going to change hugely. I now realise temporarily, but it's significant. Like I, in the first few months of having a baby, I couldn't finish a sentence very well. My sister doesn't have children. I remember trying to explain to her that it's like a, you know, the rolling news, the ticker tape under the news. It's like that constantly blaring out into your brain. Of when did they last eat? Well, how am I going to clean that up? Do when did they nap? And you know, and I meant my partner saying. I can't remember how old our child was. He he seems to either be having a nap, getting ready for a nap, or waking up for a nap. That's (laughs) all I think about. And so when you have... And it's significant. There are survival things. You have to do those things or your baby dies. So the stakes are pretty high. So in that kind of adrenaline-fueled, sleep-deprived, complete survivalist state, you don't have much time to be thinking about... So how did you write your book? How did you do this? But uh, just to finish my first point, which is so that was the idea I had. And what frustrated me so much about this crisis that happened at 28 is that it didn't have a name. And I'm thinking that I knew about puberty because it had a name. And I knew about the midlife crisis that had a name. I knew about Anthony syndrome, it has a name. I knew about even quarter-life crisis has a name. So we were all individually unprepared for this thing to happen. And so when it happened, we thought it was an individual failing on our part or crisis on our part. And what I wanted to do with the book was to give this thing, this phenomenon, this set of circumstances combined with the biological circumstance, a name. So women in their 20s, 30s, even 40s would identify it and be prepared for it and maybe handle it a bit easier than I had Mm. because no one wants to see their life go up the wall but if if you know it's going to happen and you know it's for a purpose it makes it slightly easier to bear when it does Mm -hmm. so that was the um sort of that was the how the book came about and um so it started to be more about the lead up to the Leading up to the decision to have a baby. There's a sort of joke about the book that people talk about the first half and then the first half when I'm deciding to have a baby and the second half when I have a baby. Mm-hmm. Actually, I can show it to Rachel. I don't even get pregnant until sort of page 200 of a 200, 300 page book. Like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. A, or even like, I think I actually have a baby in three of the chapters and there are 21 chapters. It's n- by no means, and this is by no means a mummy manual. Because so manual. much of the book is about.
0: The uncertainty
1: and the vibration yeah, and, and... and the sort of circumstances in which that decision is made, whether that's your career or your friendships or where you live or the relationship with your pa- parents or whatever. Mm. Um, so How old go- is your son now? Mm. He's now two, two, and a couple of months.
0: So, do you have any thoughts on that feeling that w- that w- a lot of women feel like they need to get to a certain place before they have the baby? Is that st-
1: yeah? It's heinous because okay. no man is thinking like that. And this is the other that I think there's there's an undercurrent to the book, which is just me howling into the abyss, saying, Why do men not feel this? Like male fertility degrades at a comparable if not the same rate as women's the likelihood of sort of complications congenital disorders inability to conceive increases as a man gets older they will also suffer the sort of impact on their social life if they're in any way involved good dads Why are they not, why was no man I'd ever had sex with ever thinking, God, I've got to get to a certain point by the time I'm whatever if I want to have a family. They treated having children as something that may happen in the future. They didn't really have to plan for or worry about or even change, adapt their life to. And that just made me so angry because no man should, it allows this, I think it allows a situation where, mm, Women have to then pull along the burden of fertility single-handedly. A woman goes on the pill, and, they, and I'm using terms men and women here. I mean, you know, people who identify as women and men and are mm-hmm. socialised as women yeah. and men. Um, they, a woman like me would go on a pill at 16, 17, and then they are sort of considered responsible for their own fertility from that point on. The number of men I had sex with who never... Ch- even checked that they weren't getting me pregnant, let alone take the control to not get me pregnant, is insane. Like mm. they, I could have, I could have had so many children by men that just thought I had it covered, and that, I think that's vile. Like they, because then when you reach a point where you think you maybe would like to have a family, mm-hmm. there's this sort of thunderbolt that goes through men where they're like, "What? No. What, uh, but that? N- no. Like I, if you, if I don't want you to get pregnant, then you can't get pregnant. It's like no, I absolutely, like, I've had." apparatus to get pregnant this whole time just because you haven't had to deal with it like I, <clears throat> this is a, it is similar I now think if for the year and a half that we're having sex before we before I decided that I wanted to have a child if every month my partner had wondered if I was pregnant in the like if I hadn't been on contraception if he'd wondered then the the prospect of me getting pregnant wouldn't have been quite so alarming and foreign to him you know mm-hmm. because he would for women, throughout their lives, they will have pregnancy scares. And every month, you will wonder until you get your period whether you might be pregnant. You know, unless you have a particular kind of, if, unless you're celibate or whatever, there's a possibility that you're going to be pregnant at any time. Actually, I then discovered getting pregnant is much, much more complicated than yeah. we think, and you're fertile for much shorter time than you think you are, but whatever. Um, yeah. And so it made me very angry because although I was aware of the gender pay gap and that like you know the, the way that the patriarchy means that work is organized to suit men and not women and all of that stuff I wasn't quite aware in the sense I hadn't felt it that my attitude to work and career was shaped by my attitude to fertility in a way that men just didn't have. Like the men in my, the men that I'd worked with and under and managed were not thinking about this in the way that I was and it put me at a disadvantage because I had this kind of sense that I had to, I couldn't just be the relaxed, nice person who turns up to a job interview at 27 and be like, yeah, like, I want to do this for 10 years and then just see where life takes me. I was like, no, I actually really want to become established, get this job title, get maybe get this kind of income, get this security that I'm going to be doing this for a while because I want to do something significant in the next few years that may take me out of working for a while. And that obviously impacts the way that you're going to feel about your job. I, did, I wasn't willing, I basically wasn't willing to take on like a... a anything too insecure or too poorly paid mm-hmm. because I knew that I had to sort of get my shit together. Mm. And after having a baby, my God, it's incredible. Like I just, I now value my worth in a way that I just didn't before. My time is just worth more because it can, like the nursery stuff will come onto and the cost of childcare, but even before that, If someone said to me, oh, you know, can you do this piece of work? It's a hundred quid and we need it in two hours. i think, um, no, (laughs) basically no. Because um, that's two hours that the logistics of being able to work for the hour that it's going to take me to do that work. I would also have to do two hours in preparation just so I can, you know, I have to feed my baby, make sure that he is asleep so I can do the work that's like a 45 minute exercise in itself, if not an hour. And then I've got to write it. And then I've got to send it to you. And you're only gonna pay me a hundred quid. That's not enough. Can I get to that point, even if I don't have a kid? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's easier when you have a kid because you can, there is this sort of magic key that you can say to the people who are possibly commissioning you, I'm really sorry, but I don't have any childcare today. So I can do it for tomorrow, but I can't do it today. Do you
0: worry then about saying no and people not coming back?
1: Uh, no, because I believe in the kind of humanity of people. It's pretty socially unacceptable to say to a parent, "No, fuck your kids." Sorry, <laughs> like, do, do do the work that I want you to do, and yeah. I don't kid, put your kid in a bin while you do it. Like they know that in the in the game of top trumps, your child's happiness and survival and health is basically more important, and so they have to. And that maybe uh, in the book I write about, you know, the revolutionary idea of having. 24-hour free crashes. Mm-hmm. The, the there was a, a women. The first women's liberation conference that was in held in Ruskin College
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, in 1970. They had these amazing <clears throat> demands: um, equal pay, equal opportunities, uh, access to abortion, free and open access to ab- abortion, and 24-hour free childcare. When I was twenty, those latter, the, the, certainly the last one, didn't mean so much to me. I was like twenty-four hour childcare, like, fine if that's what we need. But I didn't. now I get it. It's like if we did have, um, <clears throat> if we had access to free childcare, people, parents would operate in such a different way, and there would be an understanding of what that means. But without that, workplaces basically have to, they have to, they have to make contingencies for working parents. The cost to the economy of people who are stre- like suffering from anxiety and depression is enormous. Part of that is surely because they are struggling with struggling all these assets of their life. Whether they have children or not, there's a, sort of a pressure to be succeeding all the time. And I think if you... If you make your work... If the workplace is more accommodating, that pressure is slightly alleviated and people can perform better. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying twenty-four hour questions are, like, the secret to everything. But they'll make a massive difference. But they
0: seem pretty basic. If we look back in 50 years' time, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, there have been some, I, yeah, really good, relative to what we have, um, shared parental policies that come out from mm. different companies like Diageo. And I saw another one, in it was Bailey Gifford Asset Management, where...
1: And the civil service is actually pretty good
0: now. So what do you think of those? Because, you know, they're offering equal leave. I mean, both employees could be at the same company. It could apply to surrogate. There's all these kind of provisions Mm -hmm. which weren't there before. Do you think that's a step
1: in the right direction? It's definitely a step in the right direction. It's definitely a, it's sort of, if nothing else, it's like a public-facing acceptance that the state of things isn't good enough and that is and that parenting is a very important job it's not gone as far as that I think I think that all parents or all people with a caring responsibility that might be for a sibling a parent whoever should be paid a wage from the state to do that because it would be cheaper than outsourcing that to a privatized set you know like it's basically cheaper for the state to pay me to look after my son than for the state to pay me to then pay someone else to look after my son mm. it just is mm-hmm. and you look at, you know, there are places that do it better I think is it in Berlin you get all early years care is free and so of course Berlin does it better of course they do it better <laughs> and probably Scandinavia do it better. and other places do it better But um, because if you if as a government or state or or just the the power structure what you want I imagine is a happy healthy population that's the sort of main thing that's what people fight wars for and you know that's what they believe in that's what people vote for they want to be happy healthy looked after and able to live a life of relative freedom that's what we want Surely, like, the early years which we know are so incredibly formative, like, they medically, socially, emotionally, it's all there in the first five years of your life. We, if we put the money in there, it would reap enormous rewards later on. You know, there would be a healthier population with a better relationship with their primary caregiver, whoever that is. They'd be better f- able to form relationships. They'd be better to concentrate on tasks to them. They would be more likely to be able to go out into the world and behave in a kind of socially acceptable, altruistic way. So it just makes sense, <coughs> as a humanitarian, but also economically, to put your money into the early years of someone's life. Weirdly, what we seem to do in this country is to say, if you're having a baby, basically that's like a private domestic setup that you need to organize and we're not going to give you anything for, like, Mm. family allowance, what it used to be called. Um, I can't remember what it's called now. Anyway, it's 20 pounds a week. What's that? I mean, what is that? I'm like, I'm living a certain kind of urban middle-class life. But if I, even if I lived somewhere in different circumstances, 20 quid is not, it's gonna pay your nappies, that's it. Like, what about your heating, your ability to go to a play group, to get to your midwife appointment, the bus fare to go to the doctor, the you know the ability to buy clothes for your child and you, like taking away all the luxuries of like baby yoga and what, all, like, all of that stuff, forget that stuff. Just to keep a family, parent, child, healthy and alive takes a huge amount of money. Why are we not putting money into that? Mm. Why do we not why do we not do it? <laughs> and when you mentioned nursery fees that really got yeah.
0: really got me. Um, okay. okay.
1: Shall I give you the stats?
0: I would love it because I do know one of my colleagues who has to leave on the door every day because they will get charged X per minute that they're mm. late mm. and it just seems like incredibly Punitive and
1: stressful yeah. way to live. So, yeah, yeah, please tell me the stats. Yeah. Well, the, the stats that I, as I understood it at the time of writing, so my local authority nursery, so this isn't like a private nursery, this is one that is subsidised or affiliated to a local education authority. It's £43 a day minimum for any child between zero and two. So, if your child, even if you're going to work three days a week, that's still like £125 a week just on childcare. Um, In the UK, the average cost of sending a child under two to nursery is £127 a week if you work part-time and £242 per week full-time. The average wage in the UK for someone working full-time is £569 a week. That's like just under 30 grand a year. Meaning that once you've taken away childcare and just childcare, you've got £327 left. That basically means 43% of your income is going directly to childcare so if you're working even if you're working full time 43% of your income is going to childcare mm. so you're then operating with what like 57% of an income plus the added expense of having a child it doesn't mathematically it doesn't work and that's if and I think there's an assumption that you have a partner who will be doing a like they will keep their job they will be supporting you financially and so if you know if you have to if you, have to, if you make a little bit less for those first two years, that's fine because someone else is sort of bumping up the money. Bullshit. What about all the single parents? What about all the parents with... What about both parents who are on a zero-hours, low-income yeah. contract who can't subsidise their partner being off work for two years? Yeah. I basically got into a situation because of this and... <clears throat> Amazingly, because I was lucky enough to get biologically pregnant, no one checked that I could afford to have a baby. I didn't have to prove to anyone, unlike with adoption, where you have to go through these enormous, like, I mean, quite taxing logistical, emotional, financial checks to see that you are able to have a baby. If you can just get pregnant like I did, it's only once I had a baby I realized I couldn't afford it. (laughs) I couldn't afford to have a baby. You know, like, if it's 50 pounds a day to send my child, to nursery in that day on a good day I might make 150 pounds but what about the day I send them to nursery and I haven't made any money all my pictures have got turned down or the person I want to interview can't make it or the the newspaper that I've worked for there's a delay in payment or the you know the organization common. <laughs> the organization I've worked for has folded and they're not paying anyone or there, there's like a freeze on it's so as someone who had a fairly unpredictable unstable working life whereas one week I might make 300 pounds one week I might make no money at all I felt like I couldn't afford to put my child into childcare, which meant that I then was less free to work financial
0: no uncertainty must have been a good motivator for writing the book then good yeah. way to finish your oh deadlines my God, yeah
1: yeah like I knew that for the first time in my life I by getting a book deal with a major publisher I had bought two years where I didn't need to be constantly making money every week which is huge for me that that is enormous that's like winning the lottery Mm. of course then a lot of that money goes on just the daily day-to-day existence and you're left with like the kind of income that I had when I did a like the job I was doing a casual job while I was pregnant and the first year that I had my child which was minimum wage and it was like a zero hours contract I like that is sort of the income that I live on now because I don't want to just spunk away this advance that I've got on my book by just Mm. you know just the tiny day-to-day existence of having a child. (laughs) Um, Can we talk
0: about your partner for a sec? I really admired the kind of honest way you wrote about the fact that you got to the same place but in very different ways and kind of, well, not different times, but Mm. there was a sense that this was really what you wanted and you had to keep approaching him about it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember saying something like he was, the whole time, he wasn't against the idea, he was just considering it and thinking about the practicalities, including Mm -hmm. the financial... Mm -hmm. so how much did that factor the finance side of it factor into his decision making and do you think because you said earlier that you realized you couldn't afford it after getting Mm. pregnant
1: so how much does money come into all this generally massively i would say it's very kind of you to say that i wrote about it well it's nicer of him to allow me to write about it so boldly like i'm very grateful to him that he's let me basically tell my version of it without intervening Um, But he is like the only child of a single mum. He grew up on a council estate and he's always, so his understanding of money and security is slightly different to mine, only slightly, but like he knows what it's like to, like he remembers his mum saying to him when he was old enough to remember this, so maybe five or six, she'd got a job, I think it was 22,000 pounds a year. And she's like, so now Nikki will be all right and like that is huge so of course like his and that also means up until that point she wasn't alright she wasn't sure if she could afford this she couldn't she, you no, know, she couldn't have had a child if she hadn't had a house that was subsidised by the council thank god like more of them please and she had to carry on working whilst having a child so when I very blithely said oh come on let's have a baby let's have a baby before it's too late he was obviously had a a, a like palpable tangible personal understanding of what it means to not necessarily be able to afford that mm. and that security is hard hard won and really precious and so while i was he would say things but the problem is communication it's always communication he would say but like where will they sleep and i was like they'll just sleep in our room but what he means is like can we afford our housing like and if you're not working can i really pay our rent and like can we pay the rent together and this is a child that we're not just going to have for the first year that they sleep in our room like they're going to need space do we have physical space like housing is massively important and he he was also having a career change could he now says quite rightly that that was tempered or at least very different because he had a baby he didn't he had he wanted to where he worked was compromised by needing to be able to get home fairly quickly. Like if there was an emergency, he wanted to be able to get home within an hour in London. That, mm-hmm. you know, so that made his decisions about where he was going to work different. And he also probably felt the responsibility to be earning a certain amount of money. And he also, but money aside, the freedom to pursue the career that you want is really important. It's important for your identity and it's important for your long-term happiness. And he knew that having a baby would kick that ambition to the bottom of the pile for a while. Mm. And so he was going to... He was going to be so preoccupied with making sure that his son was happy and healthy that chasing every work opportunity would not be as available to him. Mm. Um, But because the way we talk about money, even within our relationship, isn't uneasy, it's an uneasy conversation. I think in the end, I had to literally like show him my bank balance and be like, look, I've got enough money. Uh, like I had over the years of working in from my redundancy money, I had like a chunk of money that meant I could at the very least pay my rent for six months. It's like, here we are and like, you know, we can, I can subsidize the rent and I like I, I can basically and I can keep working. This is how much I've earned this month, this is my tax return. Like we can afford to do it. And I think hearing me talk about the practicalities, because I was trying to win him over with emotional arguments, of course. Telling him he'd be a brilliant dad. Telling him that I wanted to have I wanted to have his babies. That I loved him. All of that stuff is important. You should say that too. But also to say, like, logistically, I have thought about this and I can, I can afford it at the moment. And we will, like, I. If it means making certain compromises, like leaving London or taking, like, if I have to then get a part-time job, I'll do it. Like, I, I had to sort of lay the financial arguments out in front of him for him to then be able to hear the emotional arguments, I think. Mm. Um, So it's tricky. I mean, now we're almost back in the same position. I want to have another baby. And he quite rightly is really reluctant because he knows the sacrifice that involves, the insecurity that that involves. And so he is again saying no. And I'm saying yes and he's saying no and I'm saying yes and it's really 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 hard but now you know you have to hold up the bank part again hold <laughs> up the bank shortcut. shortcut. but yeah and, but it's really weird isn't it that I think we and I do it too we talk about how having a baby uh, curbs female ambition but we don't talk about the fact that to be a good father you have to curb your ambition too like you know if you're going to be a good hands-on dad so not the kind of dad that walks out of the house at eight in the morning, you know, get, plays golf, goes goes away at the weekend on work trips, sees their kids occasionally, pays for their nursery fees. I mean, like a good involved, loving father who sees them on a day-to-day basis is there when they you know, is there when they eat their first bit of pear and is there when they're crying and knows their friends' names and knows the names of the other mums that play, you know, goes to a playgroup where you're the only dad. I mean, all of this stuff, I think, is really, really important. Mm. To do that, you're not going to have the kind of career that you could otherwise have. Like, if Nick had just... If he'd said, like, if he'd walked away, he would be incredibly successful now, and he's not because he was being a dad and that's tribute to him but it also needs to be that's why shared parental leave I think is a step in the right direction but only if it is a recognition that parenting whether you're a father or a mother is a massive job and it is going to impact your ability to do the paid job
0: Do you think your ambition's been curbed? Because from the outside perspective I've read your book but yeah, I'm still looking at someone who's successful, a full mm-hmm.
1: columnist and has a book deal so... Well this is the this is where I like I have to be careful not to speak from a massive position of privilege, which I am. But for me, having a baby has had a tremendously good effect on my career. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> and because because right down to it gave me the self-worth to say I'd only do work that was financially viable and worth it right up to it gave me an experience that I could communicate to the world through a book and coming on podcasts and doing talks all of that stuff so for all that I may sound like a sort of doomy naysayer about having a baby that is going to ruin your career it might also have an incredible effect on your career like look there are there are plenty of people. That have been massively galvanised by the experience of parenthood and has allowed them to do things that they didn't think they could do before, Mm. Um, because you learn you learn your capacity is greater than you thought. Like I can now, you know, I I wrote this book in I wrote it over a series of three and a half months, four months which makes it sound like a long time, but actually what I No, did, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I actually did, it gets worse, was my son would wake up at four in the morning and I'd breastfeed him and he'd go back to sleep. So I'd work from four in the morning till six in the morning when he woke up and then I'd look look after him and then after, he'd have an afternoon nap for two hours and I'd write it then. And then I'd look after him until he went to bed at maybe seven, eight o'clock at night. And then I would work then for a little bit like then I would probably not do the writing work but I do like my emails you know the kind of logistics of writing Mm. which is getting in touch with people setting up interviews Mm. so in four hour chunks every day I wrote the book in the dark on my own in my front room while my child was asleep that's really lucky if you know because I'm a writer I could do that we have all the you know or Bainbridge did it. JK, Rowan. like people have done it. I'm not revolutionary in that, but I'm also incredibly lucky that that was a path open to me. If my job was nursing, you can't. A nurse can't breastfeed mm. her baby. Go and be a nurse for two hours and then come back and look after her baby or her toddler. Mm. She has to be at work. She mm-hmm. has to be in a place of work. Mm-hmm. So it's very different.
0: It's still given me a lot of perspective, though. You talking about that, it just makes me
1: question my own work ethic oh oh god and mine like after (laughs) after i'd written the book i was like desperate to write another one because i was like i have achieved this thing in those blank hours so i could i I could keep going i'm very lucky now i can afford for him because of the book deal i can afford him to go to nursery two mornings a week i've got six hours a week to just do whatever the hell I like. Like and, and and whereas before, six hours would be a working day and I'd maybe, you know, do a bit of work in that day. Now that feels like a huge amount of time to do something. Like I yes. honestly feel like in six hours a week I could write another book, I could
0: yeah. I could do anything. I'd love to feel like that. Maybe I should just have a kid to feel
1: like well, that. <laughs> no, but it's it's the greater dude that restriction is the yeah. it's key.
0: You tweeted a few weeks ago, about never spending more than forty pounds on anything. So yeah. I wonder if that was your attitude before you had kid. You had sort of an attitude about money, you know, throughout your life.
1: Yeah, my first job, my first job, job, full time, paid job as a graduate, was ten thousand pounds a year, and I was living on my own in a one bedroom flat. So my rent was, I think, three hundred and twenty pounds a month, three hundred fifty pounds a month. This was in Leeds. And so I was living on not very much money, obviously. Like, I can't even do the maths, but I, my disposable income was really small. And I did that for two or three years. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it because I don't want everyone to work on minimum wage, which is what it was. But it's an incredibly useful life skill to be living on a, a definite budget. I've never... It's really hard to talk about this because I am like a white middle class woman so I'm speaking from a massive position of privilege but I've never been I've never gone into my overdraft because I'm too scared of debt and I have I for you know I when my when I finally moved in with my boyfriend at the time I left a flat that didn't have any hot water (laughs) I I didn't like my all my bills were teeny weeny because I would just like I'd have one lamp on and I would I never got the bus, I walked everywhere. Like, I was just used to living on a small amount of money. There's nothing heroic about that, it's miserable. There are people who live like that their entire lives and they have kids and it's shit, they shouldn't have to live like that. You know, there sh- people shouldn't be living on so little money that they have to decide between getting the bus or buying milk, it's terrible. But I was very lucky that I was able to do it for a while, learn the skills that I can then keep now. Mm. So I I can when my son was little before I got the book advance, I was back to those things. I was eating rice every day, and I was walking instead of getting on the train. And I was you know I was, I've never bought him, I've never ever bought him anything new. Every like everything is from charity shop. All his toys, all his clothes, either hand-me-downs or I've got them from charity shops. Great for the planet though. Yeah, I know it's so. This is, the, you know, we were saying about. um Crashes, you mm. just have to roll back 30 years to the way people were living then and it was a bit more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Ecologically, I think the mm-hmm. same is true. Like, I had flannels and Tupperware. I wasn't buying pre-packaged food. I was carrying around Tupperware. I was washing him with flannels. I was walking everywhere, all my clothes secondhand. hands. That's cheaper, but it also has the added Yay. bonus of being ecologically and ethically better. Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> so, like, all we have to do is roll back to the way that my mum and definitely my granny were living Mm. For it to be a more sustainable exercise, if you can, if you can really en- savor sitting on a windy beach and having like a sandwich that you brought from home, then the whole your whole life is nice. <laughs> but if what you need is like an Instagram-worthy European beach with like a like a very beautiful Instagram-heavy plate of food that you've bought in a taverna then you have to you're sort of in a constant state of aspiration and desire which isn't very comfortable that's capitalism that's capitalism oh yeah like i this is tricky because i write for magazines but i don't read a huge amount of i don't have a tv and i don't take public transport so even a, aside from magazines, I'm not, I'm just not exposed to advertising as much as I used to be or other people.
0: I was saying that recently. I don't feel like I'm influenced by adverts at all. I it's don't click
1: in, on adverts. Isn't it incredible though? It's incredible to, to not, just to not see adverts. Yeah. And like, even if you can block them out, they're still there. Like, they I still make a lot of money, but I don't <laughs> quite understand how. I don't know like the way them. I felt about my body, changed hugely just by not seeing adverts. Mm, Interesting. And the way I felt about my life changed massively from not being exposed to advertising. Even though like, I am a fairly cynical educated woman who, I've worked in advertising I know the lies, I know how it works. So I know know a shampoo is not going to get you a husband. (laughs) I know that. But there's a bit of you that still thinks having shit hair makes you ugly. And it tells you that there's such a thing as shit hair. Which there isn't, Ta-da, it's all lies. Nice. It's just capitalism selling you a problem. Mm, that's very true. <laughs> I think that's quite a good note to end on. Okay.
0: Shampoo cannot give you, what was it?
1: Well, I said husband, but let's change that. Husband. <laughs> like, shampoo cannot make, shampoo will not bring you love. That's
0: the one lesson.
1: Well, not the only lesson, I take many lessons from your book, <laughs> but it's a useful one. So thank you so much uh, for your time.
0: My pleasure. Next up, Hayley Milhouse, Head of Advisor Services at Open Money, talks a little about financial preparations when it comes to having children.
2: Women often speak of the many emotions they experience when they find out that they are expecting a baby. Joy, shock, worry, excitement and fear. Worry and fear often come from the thought of how will we, I, manage financially. This has become more prevalent as many women now contribute significantly to the overall household income. And according to the Money Advice Service, on average the UK spends £11,000 on their newborn baby a year. So some tips from me are, understand your options and plan on what would work for your personal financial circumstances. If you're employed, know what your maternity rights are, along with your partners. A lot of employers now offer more flexibility and have an option for shared parental leave. Know when statutory pay will become payable. You could use holidays to manage any reduction in income. If you can't or are self-employed, plan how much you can save now until the baby arrives in order to make sure you have enough of a nest egg to enjoy those first few months without having to worry. Modern day parenting can be overwhelming, especially as there is so much information on different products um, that are advertised, especially now via social media. This can cause stress as you want to make sure you have the best things for your baby. But it's important to think before you buy and read trusted reviews. It's also important to speak to friends, family, other parents. What have their experiences been and what would they recommend? Parenting is never a one size fits all but talking to others can help to shape what could work for you and save you money at the same time.
0: Thank you for listening to the final episode of Series 3 of An Honest Account. It would really be so helpful if you could leave us an iTunes review or a rating or subscribe so that when Series 4 hopefully hits, you won't miss an episode. Until then, we're on Twitter at honest underscore account underscore. We're on Instagram or you can email us contact at anhonestaccount.co.uk. So until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks to all my guests and thanks to Open Money for sponsoring the series.